Welcome to Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, where we aim to travel around Botswana and learn about this wonderful safari destination as we chat with experts, safari professionals and safari legends, as we share stories, recommendations and help you plan your Botswana holiday. Joining me today for episode one of Beautiful Botswana is a man who's lived in Botswana his whole life. He has been guiding across the Okavango and across northern Botswana for years. I've asked Simon to join me today because he's a friend. Simon's a wonderful person, wonderful guide, and I think to me the most notable fact about this guy is that absolutely everyone who knows him likes him, and there's a hell of a lot of people out there who wish they could be him. And I think that that's what uh, really is one of his defining defining traits is his popularity. Anyway, it gives me great pleasure to welcome today my guest, guide extraordinaire, Simon Byron. Welcome, Simon. Hi, Tess. Thanks for the intro. Very flattering. Um, it's, good, it's good to be a part of this, and I look forward to seeing uh, and hearing the rest of them. It's going to be a good good show, I think. Well, thanks very much for your support off the bat. Simon's joining me today to talk about the safari landscape as we look at northern Botswana and the different areas and what those different areas offer us as safari destinations. Obviously, when we look at Botswana, there's so many places that we could talk about. And going forward, as hopefully my episode count grows, we'll definitely get into talking about a few of the more far-flung, more secret, more of the beaten track places. But today, I'd like to focus on the more known names, the more standard inclusions in itineraries into Botswana, so that we can give anyone who doesn't know the country well, or anyone who's visiting for the first time, a really good snapshot of what Botswana offers as a safari destination. Simon, before we kick off into talking about Botswana and the different areas, I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself. I think the people of the safari industry are as fascinating as the wildlife. So would you mind starting by chat, telling me a little bit about how it is you became to be a safari guide and, and what led you to be where you are now? Sure. Uh, yeah, started long Long back as a youngster, I was very lucky. Grew up uh, going to wild places and living on a farm. Um, my parents loved to travel. My dad's a geologist. So we went all over the place and I just grew a, an affinity with open spaces, I guess. And then, yeah, school, university, studied environmental science, which got me out a lot as well. And then started working in the safari industry. And that was that, eh? And can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what it is you're up to nowadays in terms of how how you spend your hours when you're not in Botswana lockdown due to coronavirus? Yeah, very different schedule, eh? Um, I'm now sitting underneath a lovely forest of trees in the Okavango. Just sitting, I guess, is all we can really do during corona. But uh, generally, we're running a small safari company, um, and we do mobile safaris. We started off doing mobile safaris across most of northern Botswana, um, and that slowly evolved. We we operate in our own uh, little corner of the NG26 concession, 
um, and run a, a very small and simple trail um, through a very, very wild wilderness. Also done a couple of trips into Angola, um, just sort of pioneering fun more than anything else uh, to go and see an amazing landscape, but focusing now just on, on Queenie trails, basically. That's awesome. We're definitely going to be doing more uh, chats in the episodes going forward, talking about the different types of safari and, of course, mobile being a real explorative adventure. And within the mobile options, there's so many choices to choose from. So we'll definitely get into what mobiles offer people as a um, as an option going forward into future episodes. But I think it's great that you've got the experience of having been all over northern Botswana and, as you say, into Angola so and beyond. So, Sai, my last question before we start tackling this question about the safari landscape is, I mean, I've already mentioned that we're not doing what we'd normally be doing right now. We're, we're, Botswana's in lockdown. It's April 2020, and our industry's uh, been pretty, pretty hit pretty hard, which is why one of the reasons why I'm doing this, so that we can be creating something positive in this uncertain time. But what is the thing you're missing the most out of a safari right now? What is your favorite kind of bush moment? Yeah, there's a lot that, that's been missed now. And, and just just some of the routines of day-to-day camp life, you know, early morning with coffee around the fire, um, then heading out on a walk and uh, a little bit of butterflies or anxiety about what you're going to bump into on the way. There's a, there are a lot of things, but I'm quite lucky. I'm not too far from from the bush itself, but I'm far from safari life. Indeed, indeed. So which of these areas we're going to discuss today is where you'll uh, head first on your when, when released from lockdown? Uh, we'll head straight into, into Queenie. Um, got a lot to do there, so... Lot to explore, lot to see. So Okavango all the way. Yeah, yeah, for now. We're gonna have a lot of water here soon. Um as we speak, I just checked uh, some sat images that came in on uh on a, a website called the Sentinel. And there's the water's about fifteen and a half kilometers from the Buffalo fence. So it's about fifteen Ks from us and it'll be here. That's awesome. Uh, can you explain to our listeners why that buffalo fence is so relevant? Why we use it as a landmark? Yes. Yeah. So the whole the whole of the northern Botswana landscape is surrounded by a bunch of veterinary cordon fences to keep the buffalo separated from the cattle. Um, so we're right on the, the the basically the edge of the conservation zone. Um, all the conservation happens inside the buffalo fence. So it's the boundary, I guess. So that buffalo fence, is that running south, south um, of the of the Okavango and the wildlife areas? Yes. Well, it encapsulates most of it. Eh? Um, the fence is down and the Makhadikhadi are all related. So, But where we are is the yeah, southern end of the Okavango Delta. All right. Well, maybe we should take a zoom out a little bit and talk about the the geological landscape 
um, as it relates to the northern Botswana safari landscape. And then we can start hopefully building a bit of a picture for everybody. I am in the show notes including a map so that if anyone's a bit of a more visual person listening to this, you can follow along as we discuss this area and see the the, the different parts that we're going to be chatting about in that map so that it all makes a little bit more sense. So, yeah, so if you wouldn't mind giving us a overview of the geological landscape and then we can start zooming in on these these key markers in the in the landscape that affect the safari goes yeah well it's a it starts off i'll, I'll zoom right out and get basically the whole okavango basin system um, and that's essentially where all of this is happening so that stretches from the south of the makhadi pans right up into northern um, or central Angola um, and parts of, of Zambia as well, um, all the way down. And it, it encompasses the area that the, basically the Okavango system comes out of and the Linyanti um, Kwando system comes out of, and to a degree even the Zambezi. Um, and it's, a, it's all what, what really characterizes the whole area or the vast majority of the areas is it lies on on top of Kalahari sand um so not necessarily Kalahari desert but the Kalahari sand and that influences the vegetation types and very much influences the way the rivers flow so the catchment area of the Okavango is coming off vast ancient basically sand dunes and the water just seeps through out of this sand into the river so it's a, an incredibly clear river coming all the way down and it's in in a, an amazing area that hasn't got much uh, influence from from humans it's almost like one of the last frontiers of humans moving into wild country um and it's so it's water still coming out of wild out of wild country very much an intact habitat all the way from the top to the bottom with little islands of humanity and then it comes into Botswana, a whole bunch of geological events kick it off. Um, and the first river that gets captured by this um, is the Zambezi. So the Zambezi used to flow into Botswana, but now it doesn't. Um, then the Linyanti and the Kwando, the same story there. And then the Okavango is in that, in that league of rivers that's been caught by these fault lines. So the Makhadi salt pans are related to the whole thing in, in ancient times. But this has created an an intact or relatively intact ecosystem over a massive area that's that still functions more or less as it should. Obviously, there's some influences and interruptions, but uh, I mean the river's hardly dammed um, from the boat sources of the Kubango and the Quito um, all the way down to Botswana. There are no major dams. These rivers still flow as they should. Um, so it's an amazing huge system with Botswana just taking the southern end of it because the Linyanti also forms a wildlife area onto the Chobi system and that's all intact to the south onto the Makhadi And then looking at it from a more geographical perspective we've obviously got various countries that are part of the system uh, Angola, Zambia Zimbabwe and the fact that they share a border with Zambezi, Namibia and and then, as you said, to the south, we've got Botswana sitting there. It's pretty in, impressive, actually, when you think about the fact that the system has remained intact, considering how many stakeholders are involved in it. 
most certainly and and that's where the complications going forward come in where you've got to you've got to hope for good political relations because there's three countries that depend on these rivers I'm assuming, of course, there's also historical been um, historical management of these areas that has also resulted in Botswana's safari industry being as successful as it is, in that these areas have remained wild areas. Can we chat a little bit about which areas are national parks and how they've been conserved? Yes. So the the first, I'll come up from the south and head north from there. So the Excluding any other parks in in uh, in Botswana, I believe you're going to talk about Tuli and Kalari Hemsbok at some point. So we'll leave those out. The Central Kalari Game Reserve um, is a wild area of of huge proportion, like really big spaces, not many people, um, and but it's Kalari scrubland. Um, so it's quite a different landscape, all related. Then you move north from there, or sort of northeast from there. And you'll head into the Mahadi Ngai Pan system. So those are two national parks that are joined and vital for movement of of uh, wildlife uh, to the river systems and to the Mahadi grasslands. Um, and then you head north from there and you'll come up into those parks, connect right up onto the Chobe National Park boundary. Um, and then you've got Chobe National Park that then stretches all the way north onto the Chobe River, um, and two hotspots in that park being the Chobe River Front um, and then the Savuti Marsh. That all then connects on to the Maremi Game Reserve, which encompasses the bottom corner of the Okavango system and stretches right into the middle of the Okavango. And Maremi Game Reserve is a popular area for the mobiles, as is Chobe. Um, and... All of these areas around those national parks I've mentioned are all conservation areas, basically concessions um, where private operators are, are running either photographic safaris or hunting safaris. Fantastic. Thanks. That's, I think that was a really good um, overview. And I hope that uh, those of you who know Botswana are able to follow along as we talk through this. And um, if you don't, please have a look at the map and the episode notes. So let's um, take a trip down south into the Kalahari. Uh, Simon, why would somebody, why should somebody consider the Kalahari on their safari itinerary? What is its key, key um, experiences and key opportunities that it offers? Um. So CKGR, for me, one of the, the, the great attractions there is, is just the solitude. Um, it's a wild, wild, vast landscape. And that on its own, um, if you go and stay down there, it's, it's quite a thing to go to somewhere on the planet that's still so vast and wild. On top of that, you've got really good wildlife. Um, there's, there's really good game drive opportunities. You have to drive some distances there. Um, it's not like your regular morning game drive out of a lodge or campsite. Um, you, you've got to cover quite a bit of ground there. But there's all the big game that you could want to see. Lion, amazing lion down there, good leopard population. Um, so it's a very productive ecosystem. But bearing in mind, it's an arid ecosystem. Yeah, sure. And then which, which time of year, um, well, can you sort of describe it through the year, through the year the, as you sort of go through the seasons, what, what changes and what it offers in different seasons? So the, the rain season is, is generally when people 
do safaris into the Kalahari. And it, it's understandable why it's absolutely beautiful during the rainy season. Um, green and lush in many years, amazing skies with the, the thunderstorms um, and good wildlife congregated on the ancient uh, drainage systems like Deception Valley and that sort of thing. Um, so summer's a good time. Going into winter, it uh, you've still got a high production coming off the grasslands um, along those drainage lines, so you still have concentration of game along there. And it's lovely and cold. It's uh, certainly one of the, for us uh, people who live up here, where it's supposed to be hot all the time. Going down there in winter can be colder. Um, and uh, yeah, but but still beautiful and and really good game to see. And then as you move through October, November, building up to the rains, it's a harsh harsh environment, um, but beautiful in its own right. But it's hot, it's dry, um, and when those first rains come. It just uh, rejuvenates the whole system and changes it drastically. Well, I think this is the this is the art of of safari going and of holiday making is that at every experience is going to be unique and individual, and no experience can be replicated. And uh, it's a matter of of making the most of the time you do choose to travel. But I think giving people a bit of a guideline of what to expect through different times of the year is super helpful so thank you for that what would be the the comparison between the kalahari and the makhari khadi why or and naipan area why would people look to go to those destinations instead of to the kalahari the whole landscape changes at the makhari khadi um the makhari khadi is the the remains of an ancient lake um so in terms of landscape, it's completely different to the central Kalahari. And you've got vast open grasslands and then actual salt pan, the remnants of this ancient lake. Um, so very different looking habitat, very arid, more or less in the same climatic zone. Um, so very arid. But uh, one thing that's happened there, an ancient lake that brought in nutrients and deposited there over millennia has resulted in high, high carrying capacity grasslands. So Naipan, Makhadi the grasslands are a, a migrational area for our zebra um, populations and wildebeest populations from the Okavango and the Chobe system into those areas. So you go there in the summer months when it's green and the grasslands look amazing. There's a lot of zebra and a lot of um, wildebeest. You can even see springbok and hartebeest in some areas, a lot of uh, good uh, oryx. So it's a, it's a very productive area. Um, and very, very, very remote. Not many people get down there. You know, we'll we'll talk about the Chobe waterfront later, but that's I think for us as people who live in the country and have the opportunity to safari more often, that's often what we look for. So um, it's not necessarily everyone's what everyone's looking for in a safari, but de- definitely as locals, we're looking for isolation and being remote, aren't we? Certainly, but I think also, you know, even for first-time safari people, it's also it's not a, it's not about animals; it's about experience. And if you throw an area like that into the experience, it's an amazing contrast between, say, the Okavango or even the Chobe system. And so, it just adds a whole variation of experience, which can diversify a trip and uh, and keep people in the country longer because they're all amazing experiences. 
Fantastic. So you said earlier that um, that the Makarikari and Naipan are linked to the Chobi. So should we go into the Chobi now and chat a little bit about what it offers as a as a park? Yes. So the Chobi National Park and the and the concessions that surround it create a massive block of of wild country, um, and one of the biggest elephant populations well the biggest elephant population in Africa at the moment is is directly involved with that landscape so big elephant populations moving onto the Chobe and Zambezi rivers um, and then south again and then onto the Linyanti um, so you've got you've got big animal concentrations the riverfront where most of the Chobe National Park sees its its uh, entries is is a very busy area um, but it's quite a spectacle of of the natural world, um, and that functions mainly out of Kasani. There are a few mobile sites in the park, and then heading south from there, you head down uh, to Savuti, um, and the Savuti is more related to the the Okavango system, but it falls into Chobe National Park, and the Savuti Marsh is like a mini Okavango, high carrying capacity grasslands, um, and water when it does flood or they, they pump water um, when it's dry, has a high concentration of wildlife and a very a very impressive landscape to see as well. So those are sort of the main highlights of, of Chobe National Park. There are some much wilder corners in the park that are equally as exciting to go and visit. But if you if you ask to go to places, you, you can get taken to them. They don't have to go down the, the bread mill. Oh, exactly. So, I mean, as we go through um, this, through developing my my lineup of episodes, I'm hoping to get talking about more of these interesting areas. But um, thanks for that. That was a great snapshot of just what it is that the Chobi is about. If people have heard of the Chobi and want to understand it a little bit better, we'll definitely look into you know learning more about the Lenyanti and the more remote regions of the Chobi. But thanks for highlighting those those key those key areas. Uh, let's now move into Maremi, the, the last park that, that, and I think probably the most well-known of the lot. Um, and then, and then you mentioned earlier that there are all these conservation areas that are not named because they're privately owned. So I'd like to uh, explore that as well as when we talk about the Okavango, not just stick in the Maremi because, you know, there, there are only a, few, a certain limited number of accommodations in the Maremi, and there's so much more to experience than just what's in the park, because we're talking about a whole conservation zone, aren't we? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the highlight of Maremi is the Okavango. So you might as well expand out the the Maremi Game Reserve only takes a small slice of the whole Okavango conservation area. Um, and if you take the whole lot where all the concessions that are privately leased um, from our government are operating, it makes up a huge unfenced intact ecosystem. That, that's quite amazing. Um, the, the different offerings across the system are one of the things that Botswana has angled at and has successfully done, especially in the Okavango, is the low volume tourism high cost, low volume. And what that's given us is an amazing sense of, of wilderness because in many of our areas, you can go out and not see anyone that's not from your lodge 
on your day out. Some places you can go for days and not see other people. So that's the only major difference with the private leased concessions and Miremi Game Reserve. Miremi Game Reserve is a stunning place um, and the mobiles primarily operate through there. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of good, good experiences to be had in that area. So the Akavanga as a whole got lodge options, mobile options, which you said you'd discuss. But you can also access parts through a mobile section on boats, which is also quite a, an amazing adventure and a, gives you a wonderful sense of what the Okavango is all about, especially with a flood like this year's. Um, and when you're talking about boats, you're talking about uh, motorboats as well as Makoral, the traditional, the traditional canoe? Yes. So a mix of, the, of both. You know, if you're going to do long river trips, it's often better to go in a in a motorboat um, if you want to access more area um, but uh, Mokoro is also a must when you come to the Okavango it's it's one of our ancient craft um, that people have been exploring the Okavango with for hundreds of years and it's the best way to get about it's silent, it's peaceful and relatively safe yeah, fantastic. So in discussing the Okavango and the fact that it is bigger than just the Miremi, um, could you sort of highlight within that ecosystem where, what is the difference between the sort of available landscapes and available safari areas? For somebody for, for whom, example, maybe their agent suggests that they visit two Okavango properties or they visit a place up in the north and somewhere closer down in the southern areas of the Okavango can we just sort of look at what, how the landscape changes and, and what changes as you go through the, through the area? Yeah, it's a, I think one of the keys to, to, if you've got option of two camps in the Okavango, it's, to me, it's, you've got to experience the water side of things as much as you've got to experience the land-based side of things. So if, you, if you've got the Okavango as the palm of your hand with your fingers splayed out, as you move in from your fingertips, those are generally your drier areas. And as you get to the palm of your hand where the core of the dark vanga opens out, that's predominantly wet most of the time. So if you mix sort of a, an outer edge camp with a, an inner camp, you should be able to get water and dry land and the spectacle of wildlife that both have. Fantastic. And so the that just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, that palm of your hand area, the sort of more core wet areas that are more more um, flooded for longer in the year, I'm assuming if they're in the middle of the Okavango, they are more likely to have higher levels of water. Um, that's going to give you that Makoral floating serenely through the lily pads experience. Am I right? Yes. Uh, on on the premise that there's a good flood. I mean, we saw what happened last year with the unbelievable drought. There were lots of Makoras lying high and dry doing that. And I was one of the people who had to be on the face of dealing with unhappy uh, travellers who had um, expectations of those exact moments that weren't happening because of the drought. But if we, I mean, just we're talking very much stereotypes and generalizations here. And then if you're going down to those outlying areas or the areas where the waters get to last um, 
closer to the buffalo fence or the more surrounding delta areas you still got water but it's not so key of a of an experience is that is that basically what what the situation is you've got more dry land more driving more walking and less be, about being on boats yeah well a lot of those areas where you do have access to a, a good dryer to game drive and have really good wildlife so a lot of the experience is focused on that um and you know with the uh, decades of of really successful photographics happening in, in, in large areas across Botswana. The, the animals are really habituated. It's not uncommon to see, have several leopard sightings in a good game drive camp um, in your stay there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, good productive game driving to do. And if the boating is an add-on to that, some camps will definitely offer boating experience or Mokoro experience, but still focus a lot on the, on the game drive. Or walking in some areas. So the the question I asked about the Kalahari, I think, is also then relevant here if we're talking about water levels and that being a key part of a guest experience in the Okavango. Can you run through the seasons as they are in the in the Okavango in a normal year? Let's not look at 2019, which we know was an unusual one, but in a regular year and as we what we expect going forward in 2020. Yeah. So it all starts with the the beginning of summer for us so around november december um the rain start across this whole region of southern africa um so the same rain season in our catchment um as we have over the okavango system in northern botswana uh, but about a thousand kilometers south and the further north you go the higher the rain gradient and they're getting a lot more rain up to a thousand six hundred millimeters up in the catchment areas um and down by Mound, we're looking at about 450 millimeters. So you get a lot more rain up in the top. That stretches through January, February, March. By April, it starts drying up. But it, now as we go into our dry time, May, June, as we speak, the waters are coming down the Okavango. So it's taken them from the November rains in Angola to start reaching us now. And they will slowly mm-hmm. pulse through the Okavango through our driest time of the year, inundating vast floodplains, creating islands, um, and totally altering the ecosystem and bringing with it vital moisture and, and nutrients. So as we really kick into our driest, driest time of the year in October, November, the floods are receding and leaving behind well-watered and well-nutrified plains grass plains and good carrying capacity around the island edges and so the system booms in a time where most of southern africa is really really on its knees um, and then that flows straight into the rains with these uh, it's sort of almost you can say three different times of year if you're looking at sort of like generalizations what are the highlights of each different time of year if someone wants is going to choose to travel different times of year, what do they get? What should they expect, and what are the highlights of these different phases? So the first phase, the rain phase, um, is is just an amazing abundance of life and happiness in in, in the ecosystem. There's enough food and water. Um, well, I've not overseen the drought years, but a lot of food, water, everything's having their babies. All the migratory birds are here. It's this bounty of 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 uh, of life. Then, as you move into the winter dry months, um, everything dies back and becomes brown and grey, 
um, and it gets quite chilly. Days are quite short. Um, and that's the key time that most safaris really start kicking off. Um, and then you head off into the dry hot, which really tests you and pushes you to the excitement of the first rains. Um, that last, the last section there, that September, October, November time, for me is one of the most productive in the bush. Um, you know, bush is dry. It's very hot, but you deal with that with wet kakoyas and whatever else you can do. Um, but it's dry, open bush. Animals are dependent on the on the permanent water areas. Um, it's often for for a good good game driving activities and wildlife viewing is a good time of the year. That sounds like um, a great synopsis of what happens. It's not unusual for those of us who live in Mount to behave like the wild animals when those rains arrive, is it? <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe this year when those waters arrive as well, there might be some some good action with the at the front of the water as it approaches Mount. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Simon, thanks so much for for that great broad summary. Um, I hope that it gives everybody a really good grounding as we go forward and start getting into the meat of the different areas and what each area offers. So thank you very much for that broad synopsis. I know as a guide, you spend a lot of time talking about the finer details. So having a conversation about the big picture is not always so easy when you're used to really getting down into the nitty gritty with your, with your guests. There's a lot to talk about with the Okavango, so it's hard to have to squeeze it in, but I hope you got, uh, got the full message. I hope it was uh understandable so simon and i have a i have a list of um short quick snappy questions called our snapshot session are you ready for it yeah let's rock and roll all right so the first one what's your most valued piece of safari equipment and why binoculars most important thing to come on safari with um and everybody should have a pair and it just gives you a whole new perspective into the bush in terms of bird life and everything um you know you can also observe amazing things if you've got hunting leopards you sit at a good distance off from them um don't disturb and everyone can watch through binocs it's still an amazing experience so binoculars next question all right which one destination would you recommend a first-time visitor goes to i mean we actually i'm gonna i'm gonna elaborate a little bit because this is exactly what this episode's been about is all these different destinations so we've had a long um a long chat today about these different places which is the one of them all that you'd recommend someone goes to greeny trails the western part of the Okavango, um along a, a, a system called the queenie river two camps there you do two nights or three nights in one camp two nights three nights in the other camp wild wild country maximum of 10 people and you won't see other people for your whole your whole week there will just be one of the wildest landscapes left in the world and they've got you for company yeah that's the drawback (laughs) (laughs) Uh, one resource everyone coming to Botswana should know about a book a podcast a website what would you recommend people look into um, getting more information from Okavango Field Guide by Tony Rumerman and Lee Guttridge. It's got a good overview of, of everything in the Okavango um, in terms of species counts 
and it covers a good spectrum of the whole ecosystem. So a good little one book to have on it on a safari. Fantastic. I'll make sure I put a link to that in the episode notes with this podcast so that anyone listening can find it um, and go and look for it so they can travel with it when they get out here. So the big question, top sundowner destination or drink or piece of advice to have a great sunset sundowner? So you have to have a sundowner. It's not, it's not an option um, on a game drive. You've got to stop and celebrate the end of the day. And the traditional way to do that is with the gin and tonic. Um, and I highly recommend Okavango gin as your selection of gin. In an amazing place, and you've you've got uh, you've got a, a good uh, recipe for a wonderful rest of your evening. Yeah, fantastic. I think that along with the campfire and that opportunity to slow down at the end of the day, the sundown is sort of the prelude to that, isn't it? It's that moment to take stock of everything you've experienced and start sort of processing it. Well, the day the day is ending. The sun is setting, so you have to celebrate what you've just experienced. Fantastic. And one one last one. If you had a weekend to explore locally, where would you head? I'd head to Kuihaba Caves in the Western Kalahari. We're definitely going to have to get you back for a future episode on them. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a long story. <laughs> definitely the person I know who knows them the best out of the people I know. So we'll definitely chat Kuihaba sometime in the future. Good, good. And even better, get there. Well, I was going to say, that that would be the first prize, is talk about them when you're there. Well, thank you so much for your time, Simon. I really appreciate it. I hope you had as much fun as I did traveling around Northern Delta while we're stuck at home in lockdown. It was great to be able to sort of really think about what is out there uh, waiting to be explored when this is all over. And I thank you for your expertise and for your time. And... Uh, for those interesting insights and tidbits you gave us. Good one, Tess. Well, thank you so much for for having a chat to me. It's a, been a great privilege. Thank you for listening to beautiful botswana the travel podcast i appreciate you joining me today on this first step on what is hopefully a long journey